Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. Greetings, Auditorium 2 across the way. You guys look absolutely stunning, per usual. If you are new here, we're especially glad to have you. If you have any questions about life here at Fellowship, you can stop by our first-time guest center, which is out in the commons over here near Auditorium 1. We have a team there that cannot wait to serve you and help you in whatever way they could. And members and regulars, you know the drill. Go bother your brothers and sisters out at Next Steps. If you are interested in getting further involved with community group, community group or mission opportunities, like Jason just mentioned, uh, Next Steps table would love to help you as well. <clears throat> also, if you are new around here, uh, what we want you to know is on Sunday mornings, you will usually find us preaching and teaching straight through an entire book of the Bible but this summer, we are pausing to do a topical series on the attributes of God. We want to ask and answer the question, what is God truly like? And we're calling our series, Here is Your God. And this question about what God is really like, it matters for a thousand reasons. Most importantly, knowing who God truly is will change you. Ideas have consequences and a full and rich and glorious view of God is foundational for true human flourishing. <clears throat> Second, there are also a lot of vague and unhelpful views on God out there that are largely just based on personal projections or faddish cultural narratives. And also related to this, we have a tendency to make God in our own image, even though scripture says that we are made in his uh, after last week, Charlie just signed a massive 10-year deal with Build-A-Bear after his commercial last week. <clears throat> that is very funny. And uh, <laughs> however, his point was spot on, and that is that we end up curating a view of God, and we make God who's just like us. We build him to be whatever we want, and the sad news is that that kind of view and approach towards God will always eventually crumble. Also, maybe you're here and you actually don't really like that much the view of God that you have. Maybe you're here and you know that your view of God is a little stilted or slanted in some way and you're on the verge of giving up on church or giving up on God altogether. <clears throat> and if that's, where you are, or, uh, if that's where you are right now and you're thinking about God, I'm actually really glad that you're here because the chances are I overwhelmingly agree with you on so much because some views of God should be and better be <clears throat> rejected. But the best way to recognize the counterfeit is to study the real thing. So every week this summer, we're gonna patiently return to scripture and see what it says about what God is really like. We're gonna open God's word and then say to each other, here is your God, specifically with an eye towards Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who has come to rescue us, and all of our thinking about God must fall on him. And these first two messages are introductory. Charlie did a great job last week talking about how the God of the Bible is bigger than our categories. The psalmist says, his greatness is unsearchable, he can never be fully known, but in Jesus, he can be truly known. That was last week. And today, we're gonna talk about God the creator. So God as the creator is an attribute, but it's, it's kind of a different one. If you remember last week in Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy, Tozer writes, an attribute of God is whatever God has in any way revealed as being true of himself. Basically, whatever God says is true about who he is, that's an attribute. 
And God as creator is that, but it's like a, like a pre-attribute, it's like a prerequisite characteristic that is essential to every other characteristic that we're gonna look at this summer. So the question, what is God really like? Well, he's the creator God and this has to mean something and we will explore this meaning today. And the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter four will be our text, our passage today. If you wanna go ahead and get there in your Bibles, we'll get there in a few minutes. Revelation chapter four, also pastoral pet peeve for fun. I, uh, I'm super bothered when people call it revelations, plural. I don't know why, maybe that's just Bible nerd jokes. So if you wanna distance yourself from me, just be like, hey, how are you here in the book of revelations? Just do that and then I'll hate it and it'll be great. We'll get there in a second. Revelation chapter four, I promise. Revelation chapter four. Now as you're finding your way there, I want to tell you about someone that I love and respect more than most people in the world. He's a, a quirky, <clears throat> hippie kind of artist guy, and uh, he let me marry his daughter, which was really nice of him, especially uh, since he was dealing with 22-year-old me at the time. Uh, his, his work hangs in my office. It hangs in nearly every room in my house, and every single morning, I think I've missed one morning for international travel, every single morning since December of 2010, of 2010, <clears throat> I uh, drink out of the same coffee mug that he made. Um, also, about 20 years ago, he got on this Middle Eastern rug kick and he couldn't stop buying these rugs online. And he would study all the different tribes that made these rugs and none of them are symmetrical. He would study what all the imagery meant and all the symbolism. Uh, symbolism. And none of them are perfect. There, there's always mistakes. And so he finds a lot of beauty in that. And all these rugs are beautiful. But the good deal on that is that um, he couldn't stop buying them on eBay. So now they're laying all over my house because he has too many for his own house. Um, even when he went to make a ceramic, pic, a ceramic version of Sarah and I for the top of our wedding cake, if you see there, he put us on a Middle Eastern style rug because why not? Um, isn't that just what every father-in-law does right there? That's, that's it. And he made me a little fatter, so he's going to pay for that one. <clears throat> um, <laughs> I would give anything to like have his work up here and be able to sh show you some of it, and I would probably cry. And I'd love to get him up here <clears throat> to do the same. Um, but one of the reasons that I'm so indebted to my father-in-law, Jim Craft, is that he helped change the way that I think about God. Not only was I his TA in college and I, kept, uh, I helped keep his, his life and his desk organized, <clears throat> but I also took his art appreciation class when I was at North Greenville. You could either take music appre or art appre. So obviously I took both. And in his art appreciation class, I remember him putting up great works of art and talking about them and like crying over them on a Monday night from six to 9 p.m. And we're all like, can we take a nap, bro? Like, <clears throat> but you were just so drawn in by his passion. I, I sincerely remember him talking about one of these great works of art and he would have, I'm not kidding, a 6'4", 300 pound offensive lineman looking at, you know, like a Rembrandt or even a Salvador Dali and in tears crying about their mama. Like I legit remember that and going, man, there's something about this guy, right? <clears throat> and it was as... Hilarious as it was beautiful because he made people feel the essence and the power of creativity, which many of us just don't know how to do. And he would always say this. Even when I wasn't in his class, I would hear him down the hall in his office while I was working. He would always go, hey, I don't make the rules, but the first thing we know about God when we open the Bible is that he's an artist. In the beginning, God created, and that probably means more than we think. And the way he talked about God as creator and God as artist <clears throat> started to nudge my soul a little bit and fine tune how I thought about God. 
Now, around the same time uh, in college, I was reading C.S. Lewis, a lot of C.S. Lewis, and if you've never read his essay, The Weight of Glory, then I highly commit it to you, you're missing out. <clears throat> but it's like, it's almost like Lewis and Kraft were, were conspiring together to change my mind about God. In his essay, The Weight of Glory, Lewis writes the following. We do not want to merely see beauty though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. To be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. At present, we're on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. <clears throat> we discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure we cannot mingle with the splendors that we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we'll get in. Man, I love that. So here, here's the deal. Here's what Kraft and, and Lewis and so much of Holy Scripture are trying to tell us today. That understanding God as creator is one of the purest invitations to intimacy with him. That, that knowing him as creator gives us the framework for our purpose. And, and if we can behold God in all of his creative beauty and artistry, we won't be able to help but worship him and be caught up into his Love And as Lewis says, receive it into ourselves and even become part of it. And again, many of us just don't know how to do this. So we have to ask, how does trusting God as creator change us? That's our question today. And I, I believe that recognizing God's beauty does something to us. I believe that we're meant to feel the essence and the power of God's own creativity, but we need to know not only that it works, but also how it works. Thus our question, how does trusting God as creator change us? That's what we need to think about today. <clears throat> and we'll be helped along with our question by looking at all of Revelation chapter four, um, together today, Revelation chapter four, verses one through 11, that's the entirety of our passage. Revelation four, verses one through 11. And in gratitude for God's word, after I read uh, the passage comes my line, which is the word of God for the people of God, and then comes your line, and make it a really good one, pretty please, thank you. Thanks be to God. Um, also, you too, odd too, I have spies over there, we all know about that. So, your line, thanks be to God, make it count, make it count. Here we go, how does trusting God as creator change us? Revelation chapter four. <clears throat> after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the 24 thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne, there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. 
And around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, second living creature like an ox, third living creature with the face of a man, makes sense. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they never, ever cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory, honor, and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, as a bookend to what my father-in-law says, I don't make the rules, but one of the last things we're reminded about in the Bible about God is that he's the creator, and this probably means more than we think. Or to use Lewis language, These are the final leaves of the New Testament, rustling with the rumor that God the creator is uniquely worthy to be worshiped. Here's the deal. This is true all the way to the end of the book, all the way to the end of Revelation. If you go to Revelation 21 and 22, guess what you'll find? You'll find creation language stolen from Genesis 1 and 2. And all of this is to highlight the fact that this idea of God the creator is not a throwaway peripheral idea, but is vital and foundational to life with God. Now, I also know that there are some of you that get a a little illegally and annoyingly giddy, and you want to over-explain every single detail of the book of Revelation, and I just want to encourage you. I'm on that team. That's a fun-filled Tuesday evening for me, so I understand. But for our purposes today, all of chapter four is on its way to verse 11. That's the climactic line in chapter four because God is worthy because he created all things. So we're gonna look at the details in the first part of Revelation as a running commentary on verse 11. Somehow they're all kind of a commentary. <clears throat> so you can, you can look and maybe notice the first little bit of this passage. You got jewels and gems and lightning and fire and sea and rainbow and wings and eyes and all these things. Now, a lot of them are an echo of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 when God comes down on the mountain, but still, it's an echo using creation language. Additionally, a fun fact here, this is the highest concentration of the word throne in the entire Bible here in Revelation 4, and who sits on thrones, thanks for asking, kings do. So, if you go back to Genesis 1, So much of the language in Genesis 1 is royal language about God inaugurating his reign as the creator king. And then we have the 24 elders, and there's lots of commentary about their identity, but who they are is not as pressing as whose they are, and here they belong to the thrice holy creator king. And then we have the four living creatures who are very strange. Uh, Four in the Bible represents totality or globality, like north, south, east, west, right? And so here, yes, there's debate about the four living creatures, but it's likely that they are hinting at the totality of all living things, all created things, acknowledging 
acknowledging the unparalleled value of their maker. So here's the quick point about the first 10 ish verses in Revelation 4. For these 24 elders and these four living creatures, the, the deal is God as creator is grounds for worship. It's the reason to worship, and so that better be the case in our own lives. So here's what we're gonna do here's the move. <clears throat> we're gonna kind of pick at the implications of verse 11. We're gonna kind of pick at verse 11 for just a little bit. And I've got four observations about God the creator that are suggested in verse 11, but that we can also see elsewhere in scripture. So four observations, here we go, observation number one. God as creator means that he made everything out of nothing. <clears throat> he made everything out of nothing. The Latin phrase some of you may know is ex nihilo, from nothing. Look at the middle of verse 11 in chapter four, Revelation four, it says, for you created all things and by your will they existed. By your will they existed, it's, it's a to be verb. And this means that God's will, his desire, his own good pleasure and only his good pleasure are the single source and cause of all created things. My son James uh, is really, really creative and, and I love it and I even love a good a Lego building uh, party here even in my 40s. But what I'm saying is a Lego building party is not the kind of creativity of Revelation 4.11. This, this is Revelation 4, here we go. <clears throat> there aren't a lot of Legos, so James and I sit down, and we, actually, we don't have any Legos whatsoever, and James closes his eyes and goes, man, a mountain of Legos would be really great right now. Opens his eyes, boom, perfect amount of Legos that we need, voila, there they are in front of us, and we make whatever we want, and whatever we want is beautiful, and we love every single second of it. That is the faintest snapshot of by your will they existed in verse 11. <clears throat> The writer of Hebrews also echoes these things when he says in chapter 11, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. Unless you think this is just kind of an interesting abstract thought, this truth deeply matters. And here, I'm just gonna need you to play along for a couple minutes and put on your thinking hats just for a couple minutes. <clears throat> In the days of scripture, creation was often seen, nature was often seen as a byproduct of the pagan gods who were at war with one another. And they created all the stuff out of their own anger and divine bloodshed, and they were ticked off at each other. That was a standard classic ancient narrative in the ancient Near East and even in the Greco-Roman world, that was a narrative. Now, fast forward to our day. In our day, full-blown Darwinian naturalism states that everything came from nothing and that it all happened by accident. It all happened by chance. Nothing acted on something to make everything happen. It was all just an accident. And both of these extremes run into huge logical, philosophical, and even moral problems. Like, I can understand one God existing for all time, but where did we get all the pagan gods? And if they're gods, why are they so mad and ticked off at each other? That's really confusing to me. And if... That's your creation story. That means you're not gonna ever have hope. You're gonna be frustrated and depressed all the time because you're a result of other people's anger. Additionally, uh, and here's where we're gonna stretch our thinking just a little bit. Uh, pure nothingness isn't actually a thing. 
It's a rational and scientific impossibility because if I said, hey, close your eyes and think of nothing, you're gonna be like emptiness, darkness, space, and guess what? Emptiness, darkness, and space are all things. So nothing as a pure reality can't exist, but then, whoa, then to say somehow that nothing accidentally became everything also doesn't work. Watch this, and living with that as the narrative of how the world came to be, guess what? That also can't offer you any hope or joy or peace. Even Aristotle said that there has to be an uncaused cause for everything to make sense. It's almost like the fabric of existence demands some sort of creative being who brought life about purely by their own will. You know, like verse 11 says. Now, lest you think that this is just uh, something we need to believe in Genesis and no revelation gives a head nod to it here, I need you to think abstractly about this. This is why Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel are all barren in Genesis, to show off God's power that he brings life out of barrenness. This is why Jesus is born of Mary while she's still a virgin. This is why fruit trees blossom after winter because he's the God of the garden. This is why the pinnacle of the Bible story is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus because it shows God bringing life out of death. And guess what the New New Testament calls that? New creation. And that's why Paul, oh man, I love this. That's why Paul, when he talks about our salvation in 2 Corinthians chapter four, you know what he says? He says it's like God saying to our souls, let there be light when all that's there is darkness. So this is not a peripheral issue. We have to see that this is why we need new mercies every morning because we need to be empty vessels that we trust God to fill with his own word and his own life because we can't make life happen on our own the way that he can. That's how this is a uniquely humbling and practical idea and doctrine. And for you like super thinkers out there, it's not that pure nothingness was all there was because that's not possible. It's that God was all that was and he didn't have any Legos and he said exist and they existed and then they were created, verse 11. So yes, this is like an intellectual playground, but it's also a profoundly meaningful one because it serves up a very fat slice of humble pie, and I think that's kind of the part of the way that we're changed by seeing God as our creator. <clears throat> so number one, God as creator means that he creates out of nothing. Number two, God as creator means that he is creative <clears throat> in everything that he makes. He's creative in everything that he makes. This means that there is <clears throat> artistry to God's creation. It's not just that he made it all, by his own will, out of nothing. It's also that what he made possesses a kind of beauty that should draw us in. So what he has made is seasoned with his own creative genius. This is why Lewis, sorry, I'm gonna quote Lewis a thousand times today. This is why Lewis says, we don't merely want to see beauty, even though that is bounty enough. We want something else that can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty that we see. The glory of God in creation is meant to woo us and captivate us to the point of worship. And I think we can see glimpses of this here in Revelation 4 with the ordered praise around the throne with all creation delighting in God's glory and honor and power as verse 11 says. But this scene, (coughs) this scene 
um, <clears throat> is actually the capstone of a longer narrative and a longer subplot in the whole Bible. <clears throat> So as I was uh, researching for and writing my book on a theology of singing, like I knew it was in the Bible, just didn't know how much it was in the Bible, that creation sings. So just listen, just listen to this. Repeatedly, repeatedly in the Psalms, we find things like, let the heavens be glad. Like happy clouds and stuff. That's what that means. Let the heavens be glad. Let the sea roar. Like at a game, like at a football game. Let the fields rejoice. And let all the trees sing for joy. Or praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you heavenly hosts. Or I love this. The floods have lifted up their voice. The rivers clap their hands. And the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord. Showing that leading up to this scene in Revelation 4, the Bible regularly pictures God's creative beauty crying out to him in praise. Trees sing, waters roar, rivers clap, stars adore, angels praise, crickets chant, willows croon, dawn hums, winds serenade, hills harmonize, or in the words of one of my favorite songwriters, Aaron Weiss, the cardinals warbled a joyful song, he'll make right what man made wrong. And we know this too, we feel this, that creation's beauty is calling to us because it wants to do something to us. There's something about a lake sunset or a morning mist in the mountains or the Grand Canyon for the first time and every time or the crystal clarity of Caribbean water. There's something worshipfully transcendent about a well-done key change or a genuine smile, a powerful work of art, a well-seasoned meal, a moving story, a four-part harmony, a hearty laugh, a night sky like brightly freckled with stars, or even just a still dawn or a good cup of coffee. There's something about the beauty of creation that we all know is just right. Lewis again. <clears throat> Music and poetry, the face of a girl, the song of a bird, or the sight of a horizon are always blowing evil's whole structure away. Dude, that's so heavy metal. Good grief, I love that. <clears throat> or, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive all glory and honor and power because you created all things and by your will they existed. And I don't have time, especially because I might get in trouble, but this means that Christians should not make trashy, lame art. Please make it stop. There's absolutely zero excuse for weak media. Oh, claps. Yeah, I'll take it, baby. <laughs> There's no excuse for like weak, just mediocre Christian expressions of creativity. Just because you say something is true doesn't mean that it's beautiful or well-made or artistic or incites people to a sense of awe and wonder, grace and truth. And I could get in extra trouble and I, I'm still getting my thoughts together on this, but why is the church so scared of artists and creatives? Why are they? I think they're some of the people that reflect God the most. I just don't know what we do, but here's what I do know. We have to appreciate and make good art and do so as an act of worship, reflecting the creativity of our creator. So, what's God really like? Thanks for asking. He is a master artist, inviting us to delight in and participate in his own 
creativity. And if you do it, look out, it'll change you. Next, he made everything out of nothing. He is creative in what he makes. And number three, there is design and purpose in everything he makes. There's design and purpose in everything that he makes. So not only is there beauty, there's also design. There is intentionality in what he makes. This is the third thing third thing we need to know about God as creator. <clears throat> now, um, it is interesting to me how ordered and purposed the throne room scene is here in <clears throat> Revelation chapter four. It's perfectly symmetrical. I don't think we have a wonky circle of 24 thrones. Perfectly symmetrical, the 24 elders encircled around the singular throne and their thrones. And then we have the four living creatures. They seem to be in purposeful movement around the throne. So I do think Something like that is here, but to the extent that it is here, it should be a reminder of us uh, about God's original creation design in Genesis 1 on the first page of the Bible. And you can go look at that later, but in Genesis 1, if you you pay attention, you'll see the following, and these are like perfect puzzle pieces. Something is formed in day one and then filled in day four. Something is formed in day two and then filled in day five. Then something is formed in day three and and, uh, filled in day six. There's a dance to it. It's a poetic dance, Genesis 1. And then in day seven, we're supposed to join God in the enjoyment of everything that he has created. Now, a lot of people have tried to take modern scientific ideas and hold them up against the language of Genesis 1 and try to make it fit. The problem is, Genesis 1 is not written to address modern scientific questions. It is ancient Hebrew poetry, okay? That's what it is, it's not a textbook. Genesis 1 is not about those things. However, Genesis 1 is about a really good and really creative God and he, made everything and put design and beauty and intentionality in everything he made. And here's how Genesis 1 challenges the way the world sometimes thinks. Genesis 1 offers us a different glimpse at how the world around us came to be. And here we need to think back to our two problematic accounts of how the world came to be. Again, the standard ancient account describes creation as the result of warring deities And the modern account of the natural world world asserts that it's all an unexplainable accident. Now think about it. The purpose of the standard ancient creation account is that humanity exists as slaves to the gods, to the deities. How much purpose do you feel like you would have in your life if you thought my main point is to be a slave to all these ticked off gods out there? And the opposite of that is that if life is an unexplainable accident, ready? (laughs) If life as we know it is totally an unexplainable, whoops, then there is no meaning whatsoever. And purpose, you know what purpose is? It's just a projection of chemical reactions in your brain to keep you alive and keep you busy. So if we're all here by chance, then there's no point to any of it. But the fact that God is the creator, like we see here in scripture, that changes things. Guess what that means? This means that you are not a mistake. You are not a slave to a distant, angry God. You're not an accident. You're not a quantum hiccup. You're not a glitch in the matrix. 
No, 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 no. At the very heart of your existence is divine design, purpose, and intentionality. This means that you are deeply, deeply loved and valued. It means that you have innate dignity and worth. You are made in the image of the creator God. And you are breathing and you're alive today because he has hardwired you for life with him. Now here's the deal. That is, that is so liberating. Here's why this is liberating. Here's why this is a relief. You ready? Because not only does that mean that purpose actually exists and meaning actually exists, but it means that you don't have to come up with it. Dude, do you know how exhausting it is? We don't have to work our way to some subjective sense of existential meaning. We don't have to. We can just receive God's design for our lives. Our highest goal, our supreme purpose is found in relationship with God, in trusting him, loving him, knowing him. Look, not knowing some version of him that we make in our own image, but knowing who he truly is and what he's truly like. And this is why we're taking an entire day to stop and meditate on God, our creator. Because so much in the world today will fill your brain and will fill your heart with the lie that, yo, hey, purpose is up to you. Meaning in life is up to you. And I tell you right now, that is a burden that you were never meant to carry, ever. We exist to enjoy relationship with God and others in his world. And every other option for purpose will end in despair. So yes, he creates out of nothing and he is creative in what he makes, but there's and there's more, there's design and intentionality and function in everything that he makes. Now, before we get to our last point, um, I just wanna tell you a quick story that connects the first three points with the last one, and this story might seem a little interesting, but there's, it's basically, we haven't thought well enough and we haven't reacted rightly to the first three points, and this is gonna, this is gonna take us to the fourth point. Um, a few years ago, I had the privilege to sit down uh, on a panel discussion at the Warehouse Theater downtown. <clears throat> uh, the panel discussion was entitled Desire, Gender, and Sexuality, and it included the president of Greenville's chapter of Genderbender, a PhD in queer theory who is a professor at Furman University, <clears throat> and a redneck pastor, yours truly. Uh, <clears throat> you know, such a great bunch. Um, <clears throat> and there were so many sweet and beautiful and kind and incredible people there. And I had such sweet conversations afterward about people's faith and like where they were in life. Just really, really good conversations after it was over. And if I'm completely honest, <clears throat> a lot of that evening felt like a blur because a lot of times I'm just up there praying under my breath like, Lord, I have no idea what you want me to say to make these people know that you love them and that you created them in your image. I just, <clears throat> I don't know. But I do remember my uh, closing remarks pretty clearly. <clears throat> I said the following. I believe that everybody here, when they act on a desire that they feel, sexual or other, they are acting on a God-given desire. And the roots of our desires are good gifts from God. Then a quote of Lewis. <clears throat> there is not a God-given desire for which there is also not a corresponding divine fulfillment. And then I said, but I also believe that the Bible teaches that we have all wrongly acted on those desires, myself included. I might be chief botcher upper on this thing, like me too. And we have tried to fulfill those designs and desires on our own. And that's not first and foremost an issue of sexuality, that's an issue of what is most true about us, that we are created with dignity, worth, and value, but we have forfeited that and sought purpose on our own apart from God. 
And by God's grace, I really think a lot of people received that. And again, it led to really beautiful conversations with a lot of really beautiful people. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. <clears throat> but here's why I tell you that. This is just a reminder that the first three things are, are, are glorious, but we haven't reacted gloriously to them. So this is why there's a gap in between three and four. Here, here it is. And this, leads, this goes to number four. God as creator means he created out of nothing. He's creative in what he makes. There's purpose in what he makes. And lastly, number four, only, only God can redeem what he has created. So this is about the brokenness of us trying to fulfill God's purposes on our own. Only God can redeem his broken creation. The same God who created us with desire is himself the only fulfillment of those desires. Again on that one. The same God who created us with desire is himself the fulfillment of those desires. Or simply, only God can redeem his broken creation. <clears throat> now, just like there is an implied problem in between observation three and four, I, that's not something I made up be, because there's an, the exact same implied problem in between revelation four and revelation five. <clears throat> Chapter four, God is praised for his creation activity. And in Revelation chapter five, God is praised for his redemption activity, which we know is just new creation. And we're not gonna be able to sift through all the details, but let's follow along in Revelation chapter five. Revelation chapter five, verse one. <clears throat> then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, <clears throat> a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. <clears throat> and so I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, John, stop crying, bro. Behold, the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. This is Jesus, the second Adam, coming to reverse the curse that we let into God's good creation. Verse six, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, a redemption song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you redeemed people for God from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then, <clears throat> and I looked, and I heard around the throne <clears throat> the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And notice the rich creation language of how this thing finishes. Verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. 
Now, now the, point, the point here, and there are many, but the big point is plain. We can't save ourselves. We have all acted inconsistent with our God-given desires. That is why John is crying, look, in verse four. But only God can redeem what he creates. He knows full well. He knows more than me and you. All of the hurt and the hate and the pain and the sin and the anger and the injustice and the greed and the lust in the world. And so he entered his own crumbling creation in the person of Jesus to bring healing and love and peace and wholeness and justice and grace and salvation and forgiveness to bear on the broken world. And now, now the way that we get in on God's new creation story is by turning from our sin and trusting Jesus as God's agent of present and eternal change. Our highest desire should be to live in pursuit of our divine design, and we have all fallen short. But in Jesus alone can the goal of creation be fulfilled in our own lives by following him, by depending solely on him, and by extending his love to others. And when we do, we realize that this, this is precisely the meaning and the purpose that we are all aching for, and it's only found in Jesus. That is exactly the purpose for which we were made. And this is precisely how viewing God as creator changes us, when we follow it from creation all the way to new creation. Fellowship Greenville, I don't make the rules, but the first thing we know about God when we open the Bible is that he is an artist, he's a creator, and that probably means more than we think. And that's true all the way to the end of the book, and so today, it's gospel, it's good news that the creator God is also the redeemer God who has come to us in Jesus to rescue us. And I hope you believe that today. As we mentioned last week, one of our favorite definitions of worship is responding to the revelation of who God is. And so we're saying to you from scripture, here is your God. And now we want to give you time as God's family to respond to him in corporate worship. So um, a lot of you have another thing, a next thing. Um, Don't rush off to your next thing, but just take time to sit, to be still, and to consider the richness and the beauty of what we have just talked about, the band has a little bit more music than normal planned, um, and this is intentional space for us to dwell on and, and to thank God for who he is as our creator. So let's respond and let's, let's sing together. <clears throat>